You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because the real world leaves much to be desired. I do it because it lets me procrastinate drafting. I'm Fonda Lee. And I'm Melissa Caruso. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Natanya Barron. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 121, Brave New Worlds. Which I sure hope is a title we haven't used before. I didn't actually check. I'm I'll check afterwards. Pretty sure and we'll, no, and we'll you splice know. in a different one if I'm wrong. Brave Vern. Ah, there we go. There we go. There you go. Just splice that in. Well, welcome back, listeners, and welcome to two of our fantastic repeat guests that we are so so happy to have with us. Hi, friends. Hi. Hi. So tell us what's been going on with y'all since the last time. You joined us. Well, uh, let's see. I I have I can't remember exactly where I was last time I joined you, but um, I have recently wrapped up my uh, second complete fantasy trilogy with uh, Orbit, the Roots and Ruin uh, trilogy, uh, which starts with the Obsidian Tower and ends with the Ivory Tomb. Uh, and, uh, now I have a new book coming out in, uh, November, uh, in a, starting a new series, The Last Hour Between Worlds, which is in fact in an entirely new world, uh, as opposed to my previous two trilogies, which were in the same world. Um, and I've been really enjoying working on that. I'm working on the sequel now. I'm really excited about it and I can't wait to share it with people. Awesome. As for me, I also can't remember the last time I was on the show. It feels like time has lost all meaning. Yeah, (laughs) it has. It it definitely has. Uh, But in recent history, I've finished my giant epic fantasy trilogy, The Greenbone Saga. I um, published a standalone companion novella and a collection of short story um, prequel uh, collection, um, all from, and that's all. Um, so the Green Mozog is now completely done. And then I also released a novella called Untethered Sky. It's just a standalone fantasy. And now I'm working on a new standalone science fiction project um, that is scheduled to come out from Orbit in 2025. Oh, wow. Hey, that's next year now. So Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's not true. that far away. <laughs> in publishing time. <laughs> what I wanted to hear, Cass. Sorry. Sorry. And in the meantime, Fonda, you've had some of the coolest fan art that I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. Oh my god. My, oh my god. I'm, amazing. I'm always so amazed by the artistic abilities and creativity of readers. You had fan orchestral score, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a whole different level of hashtag goals. Levels, like, yeah. <laughs> I did not see that one on my author bingo card, but it's it's retroactively now on my author bingo card. It's like it's probably one of those things you want to go back to your younger self when you're like figuring this stuff. And epi- someday people are going to write bespoke music to the books that you have created. <laughs> well, I know we have asked you all in in prior episodes generally why you love world building and what you like digging into. So feel free to remind our listeners of any of that. But also, is there has there been anything really cool, really juicy, really fun, really inspirational to you about your your current projects that you're working on? Sure. Uh, I know 
for me uh, in uh, my new book coming out, uh, the reason it's called The Last Hour Between Worlds is that in fact, it's in a layered reality that has um, basically the layer of reality that my characters are from is sort of the base layer referred to as prime. And then you have echoes, they get weirder and weirder. And they talk about going one echo down, two echoes down, three echoes down and so on. And uh, basically things just keep getting stranger and more dangerous and weirder and more chaotic and reality starts shifting around and you know you get things with eyes and their teeth and tentacles trying to eat you eventually if you go down far enough um and uh and that just was really fun to write um uh in terms of world building and also a really fun challenge in that I did all this work building up they're like oh yeah it gets more dangerous and spookier as you go down but then i have to actually make it get more dangerous and spookier as, <laughs> as you go down and live up to all the hype that i've built and that was that's always a challenge when you're just racking your brain for okay what's creepier than the last <laughs> that i put in the previous chapter so i'm picturing a chart that's like you know those look the 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 smiley face to to upset face charts they have in doctor's offices like where's your level of pain <laughs> the pain scale yeah. like where's your <laughs> yes where's I, your level of weird as you go down I, in these levels yeah i need to make that graphic for this theory you should that'd be some excellent instagram content right there or it would be cool to yeah. have like in, in old encyclopedias how they used to have the the cellophane pages for like the body with all the layers it would be so yes. cool to have something oh. kind of visualization like that oh, that's cool. that would be super cool i'd have to i'd totally have to like you know get an artist to do that for me because i'm not that cool but that is amazing they do have a map like there was uh uh my my editor was in fact went to the orbit map guy uh tim paul and was like hey you can do a layered map of these uh layered realities right yeah, you can do that. That's so cool. And so that's, I haven't seen it yet. He's working on it. We've been going back and forth and I've, I've seen like early sketches for how he's going to do this. But I was like, wow, I'm so sorry. I just was not thinking of the map guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like the perfect map project. I hope he's finding it an exciting and fun challenge rather than like his personal nightmare. <laughs> A little of both. We can, we can have both. <laughs> yeah. That sounds super fun. I actually am um, both uh, enjoying and hating my current project because it is so different from um, my previous one. That's you know one of the topics that we sort of have on our on our hit list of what we're going to talk about today is um, making that really abrupt shift from one world to another. So I knew when I came off the Greenbone Saga that I had to do something completely different in order to just be able to give myself to a new world. Um, and that has been fun in some ways because um, I am known for a fantasy series, but I've always, also always really loved science fiction and started off writing science fiction. So I thought, well, oh, this is the perfect time to go back to science fiction. Um, but then uh, doing that, I also realized, oh my gosh, like I have to be science-y now. Like I actually have to create a world that like, make some scientific sense. I can't just like make things up. And um, and, and it's, it, it is also so tonally different from the Greenbone Saga. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very, it's bleak in some ways, but sort of set on an isolated colony planet, sort of corporate dystopia. And I've been calling it my um, sam cyberpunk samurai space opera, uh, which Sold. is- um, Yep. <laughs> I'll take six. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so I have like this fantastic idea of what it's going to be, but the reality of like building everything together to make it actually fit the vision is um, is another thing. But um, I'm enjoying 
like the process of doing something that is a little more contained and less of like a giant, big, sprawling, epic fantasy trilogy. Um, but realizing that the world has so many things I don't know about it is very daunting because by the time you're done working on a series that you've been with for a long time, you know how things work. And when you're with a new project, you're like, wait, how? I don't actually know how they're going to do this because I don't, there's all these gaps in the world um, that have to be filled in. And even, even simple things like, wait, what are they eating in this scene? Or like, wait, what does the scenery look like? It's all very, it's all very daunting, but it's also fun because you get to go back to like, you know, the brass tacks of like build this world from the ground up. Yeah, I have definitely had that same feeling of just like writing along, getting to something where I would have just no problem thrown in. What are they eating? Are they drinking? What are they wearing? Not a problem. And then suddenly I'm like, oh no. <laughs> All right, I have to do some world building now. I have to do some work and like roll up my sleeves and figure this out. Well, it's, it's the Carl Sagan quote, right? To to make an apple pie, first you have to create the universe, right? There's this like, yes. and, and yeah, sometimes you're literally an apple pie. <laughs> It's like, okay, so how did the apple pie get here? Do they have apples? Do they know what pie is? Mm -hmm. I'm interested to hear since you're both sort of starting projects, is there something in common that you have when you're world building that has been helpful to kind of keep you anchored amidst the kind of change and chaos of of trying something new? Mm, That's a great question. I think for me, I try to anchor a lot in just kind of the reality of day-to-day life. And what the characters, um, what do they sort of do when they wake up in the morning? You know, what's their job? Um, what do they, uh, you know, how, what's their schooling? What's their entertainment? What's their commerce? Like, I, I try to ground the story in that first. Um, but then uh, sometimes you've kind of got to you're constantly flipping between levels, right? Like it's like I mentioned earlier, where sometimes you get to a point where you're like, oh, okay, well, now he's going into a shop to buy something. Okay, what currency does he use? Oh, great. Now I have to think about like the economy of this whole place. And and so so you're kind of going like 10,000 feet in order to go back down to like ground level. Um, But I do feel like staying in the scene, staying in with the characters and sort of their life is like, is what helps me the most. Yeah, I feel like, you know, uh, building on that, um, I know one thing that really has grounded me in this new project is that my main character is uh, a new mother. And I feel like that is, uh, as a character experience, that is something very distinct uh, that is probably relatively similar in, I mean, unless you're doing a particularly out there world, but you know, that, that experience is something that is um, human and familiar that I can ground myself in and uh, sort of play everything else off against. Like I have that strong voice and that very specific headspace that I'm working from, Mm -hmm. for my character. And so whatever world building things I have to make up, I have that mindset of like, I am tired. I have no cope left. I'm fed up. Uh, like, look, I'm just, I just want to, want to have fun in my few hours out here, and it's not happening. And like, I could just, whatever is happening, whatever world building weirdness I need, I can, I can kind of contextualize it from that mindset, that specific set of goals, and um, it just gives me a way because I feel like some of the best world building happens in a hands-on way when your character is interacting with the world, and that's what can feel the most real, you know. Uh, and so having that context, as opposed to like if my characters are floating in the void and I don't know what they're doing, then it's harder to world build around them. Whereas, you know, okay, you know, what, what is the childcare situation? like? <laughs> well, that's very relevant to my character right now. So 
<laughs> you know, uh, so I can kind of build out from around that solid foundation of this character perspective and her current lens, which is very specific. One thing I do as well, that different but complementary approach, I suppose, is um, I use a lot of media touchstones. And, you know, the Greenbone Saga, that was certainly true. I, I um, was inspired by you know, everything from like martial arts films to like crime drama. And with this new project, um, you know, there's a lot of cyberpunk and and um, science fiction space opera, but also like the um, but samurai films like like Kurosawa and Kobayashi. And so I, I try to kind of um, keep those in mind as well. Um, and how they relate to world building is that I often think of like sort of a tone that I want to have for the world and that tone helps also inform what I focus on in a particular scene, right? Um, and like another sort of touchstone that I'm keeping in mind for this project is John Wick and ah, the sort perfect. of world building that goes on <laughs> in this in this the scenes where he's like just he walks into the hotel, right? And like the you know all the little rituals yeah. that happen, like when he walks into the you know into into the Continental, and um, they sort of evoke a certain flavor, a tone, a sort of stylishness to um, the narrative. And so I'm trying to kind of keep some of those touchstones in mind as well when I'm world building in some, world building something completely new. I feel like sometimes when you have a vibe or a very specific little nugget and everything can kind of unfold from that nugget in that way, just like that, that concept of, you know, uh, like this is for, I mean, I shouldn't even talk about this because this is a project that I'm just barely starting doing world building for that is not the book that I should be talking about tonight. But I had this idea kicking around <laughs> in my head a lot where the thing that sparked it was like, okay, I want there to be like a magic boiler and that it's cold and it's covered in condensation. And I want my character at some point to just be touching it and have running her hands through the cold condensation on like the magic boiler, the powers or magic boarding house. And I don't know why that specific detail encapsulates everything I need about the world, but I can unpack and like, and I've been working on world building for this someday future project. And I feel like you can just unpack so much from something like that. And just, just, it's almost like the, um, the, the, my little binary one and zero is this stupid magic boiler that doesn't mean anything. And I can just from that <laughs> unfold an entire world and just keep extrapolating in every direction until I get where I'm going. Um, like for this, you know, for the one that I, for, for last hour between worlds, it, it actually, the whole concept came from a basically ship posting with my agent about like yeah you know she was like you could do a you, you I love your fancy parties you could just do one where they're going to all these different fancy parties I was like ha, ha, ha. yeah they could be happening it could be the same party happening in a bunch of different worlds that get weirder and creepier ha 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 and she was like go write that book I can sell that book <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I did and then it was like okay well we're gonna build out from the fact that we've got this 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 fancy party that keeps getting weirder um and uh you know and and just whatever that initial nugget is it's like you just I can just keep unfolding and keep unfolding and more things build around it it makes me think of um the the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings not to you know obviously Tolkien's the big guy but I was just reading about how he revised the Hobbit because by the time he figured out that this little ring that happened to make you invisible was actually like the most evil thing in the entire universe. <laughs> there were some little things that needed to be adjusted. And I think that's a very similar thing when you're seeing this nugget that like the world kind of revolves around and everything unfolds from it. It's so, so, so cool. Do you think, I, I love the thing about parties because I love, I love party scenes and I love dinner scenes. I can write them till, I'm, yes, till I yes. fall over. Do you feel like 
for both of you, are, are there some things that you feel like are kind of like your signature in world building that you kind of go back to again and again, or that you like to make sure is in there, like certain angle or certain part of society or something? Just Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Obviously, you know, fancy parties are there. They're in all of my books. I can't I can't stop myself. Can't stop, won't stop, don't want to stop. Um, you know, I also am always going to have some kind of, and this is, maybe this is a failing of mine, but there is always going to be some kind of like weird, like hot, powerful, strange being that is either a fae or a God or a weird entity of some kind. Then there'll be, there'll be some of those around just because they're stylish and, and, and cool. And I can't, I can't stop myself. (laughs) Yeah, for me, I know I'm going to have some big punch about fight scenes <laughs> in my books for sure. They just they happen every single one of my books. Um, and so, you know, the, the the trick is what's the like particular style flavor of it for this book, right? And um, and I don't and I very much want them to be different, like book to book. Um, and so, like uh, this this particular project is, you know, it's, it's a much it's it's a lot of like swordsmanship. Well, it's like even the even the novella that I recently put out, Untethered Sky, all of its sort of fight scenes, if you will, are um, are hunting scenes. So they're like in the wilderness and animals killing each other. Um, so there's I, I there's definitely a um, comfort that comes from knowing like okay, this is going to be in all of my books, and <laughs> sort of anchoring your story around that to some extent and mm. being like, okay, well, I know that so much of the narrative is the buildup and the resolution around like these big tentpole scenes. Um, and that helps because um, if you can kind of ground yourself in like, okay, I I know that the, this sort of scene is going to happen. What's What has to happen around it for this scene to be impactful? Um, that can kind of help guide some of your narrative decision-making. I love how tactile so many of these answers are whether it's like the stuff they're interacting with or you know the fighting being a physical you know physical thing that people do and that just the way people move through the day the the things that i tend to gravitate to the most i think are like clothing what are they wearing how does it feel how does it change how they move how does it communicate something about them is it politically significant i love politically significant clothing it's just oh it's so much fun and then like the space and i think about I was thinking about this earlier today because someone asked a question in a forum I was on about like, where do you start with world building? And I was like, well, I mean, I sort of start with vibes. I start with aesthetic. But what does that actually mean when I break that down? And a lot of it is like, what does a public space versus a private space look like? And how do people interact with those spaces differently? And just from that, you, you start, like you said, unpacking so many other things. Like, what does this imply about the rest of the society, about social class, about technology you know that the are the streets safe to be in are they safe to be in sometimes and not others are they lit like there's just so many things you start taking apart based on these things that your characters are like physically interacting with oh yeah and i think that that's you know when people sort of say oh this book has very light or weak world building i think it's often because those things are not unpacked right you you're like okay they're they're wearing cotton button down shirts well that's going to tell me a lot that I need ex- explanation about if you're just throwing it in there and the world itself doesn't seem to have clothing like that. So I think, and that's, I think there's a, there's definitely a move in some genres to kind of play down and kind of, Oh, this is standard fantasy. 
you know, okay, but they're, they're, you know, do they, do they have tailored shirts like that? Are we wearing like, you know, Armani shirts or something like that? But I, I think that's what readers notice is that when the world does not feel as complex as the characters and there is a dissonance there. And I think that when I'm, when I'm world building, I'm thinking, cause sometimes I can kind of go the opposite direction in the world building and like, okay, characters, 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 um, but it's a delicate dance. It's kind of like a fight scene. <laughs> you know, you have to have the balance and the timing right. And in those scenes and spaces to have that, um, to, to all balance out in the end. I know. I saw mm. someone talking about their world building being like, well, my people are just wearing generic medieval clothing. And I was like, but wait a minute. <laughs> but what does that even, what does that mean? Like, yeah. I know what you probably think it means. You probably think it means what people wear to Ren fairs, but like, the, the medieval period was a thousand years long mm-hmm. and like where where in it what people like which people are wearing which clothing and and it's just like oh you're missing so many opportunities by not unpacking these things i feel like I and have... you, there's no 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 no. i'm just i'm just flailing at this point so please say intelligent <laughs> words. I have two two separate and conflicting thoughts on that well Ooh, actually, love it i did a uh i actually did a paper in college when i took a history of clothing course which was of course like you know my dream course uh but uh uh, comparing the uh, fantasy clothes, this sort of imaginary fantasy clothing that's supposed to be this nebulous Renaissance medieval period that we all know what it looks like. And it's on the covers of books and you see it at rent fairs and you see it in uh, lark costumes and things like that. And I was comparing that to actual historical clothing and like, where where does some of this even come from, right? And and uh, and and how there really wasn't a lot of, uh, a lot of matchup. But on the other hand, I know with my new series, one of the things I did was, so my, uh, in the world that I'd written in for six books, I had a relatively, and like I gave myself some leeway, but I had a relatively tight um, time period that I was trying to stay near, if not in. And with the new one, I was like, you know what, you know what, I, I, I'm going to give myself free reign and I'm not going to worry too much about how this matches up to, uh, to the real world. And I'm going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to let her be walking around in like a cool coat dress with a high low skirt and four panels like because I think those are cool you know does that match the rough time period that like I'm kind of anchoring in the sun no not even slightly but you know what it looks great so that's what we're doing mm-hmm. you know <laughs> I'm a big believer if you're not actually doing historical fantasy just yeah. go fucking nuts with like you know yeah. it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to match it if anybody's like well that's not what they wore in 13th century France you can be like Fuck you. I'm not in 13th century. It's been really <laughs> liberating. I have to say, mm-hmm. like, these hats never existed in the same time period, but here they are. <laughs> you can't stop me. Yeah. Uh, and it's been kind of nice. Like, oh, when did this food get invented? I don't care. It's here now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that if, if it is a completely invented second world, you can decide. Yes. It's like, no, they, they, have, they have these vegetables, even if in our world they didn't have them until later they have this printing technique they, they've they've figured out block printing for fabric even if they haven't figured out something else that we in our world created at the same time like in your world they can have done so um what's interesting for me is how those things get interrelated right like how how whatever you've decided plays into other things that you then make choices about in your world and 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 what they communicate right like that's where it gets mm-hmm. fun that's where it gets to be like yeah, yeah. consistent fit yeah. into the society and that's you know when when i do uh when i'm building a new world like this and go oh i'm gonna throw in this cool thing and then it's like okay well 
well, <laughs> what's that <laughs> do to everything else? Like there's um there are these guilds in the world that are like, you know, and I had to really give a lot of thought. I originally just threw it in there. This was originally going to be a novella. I was going to do very shallow world building because there's not all that much time for it in a novella. And that, that's not what happened. And now it's a series. So uh, I had these cool people <laughs> and I needed to be like, figure out a lot more about uh, about how these guilds fit into the world and do a lot more, you know, and, and uh, fleshing out of like all of the implications. Well, what is their relationship with the government? They seem to have a lot of power. How does that play out? Like, is that a problem? Uh, are there laws and rules governing how they interact and what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do? You know, if I want it to be a relatively stable society, there must be, right? You know, I can't just be like, oh, here are these powerful guilds full of people with these strange magical skills. That's not a problem for anyone. I'm sure the local <laughs> that's great. Like, it affects nothing else. There's yeah. just <laughs> no ripple effects whatsoever. No, nothing. They're just there. Yeah. So, you know, I had to figure all that out and uh, and make it actually make sense as opposed to just being a cool thing and an aesthetic that I happen to like, which is where it all starts, really. You know, I think there's a spectrum, right? I think we've talked on the show before about like, you know, being deliberate with your world building and how much you want to code your world as being analogous to something in our world versus like kind of go off and do something you know, not analogous to our world, right? And even when you're talking about something like a secondary fantasy world where you have free reign to do whatever you want, you're still making choices about how much you want to evoke our world. So with the Greenbone Saga, for example, I had a very specific time frame, right? It technologically that this story was taking place. So I wasn't like mixing, even though it's a secondary world, I very much wanted to evoke like latter half of the 20th century. So that made all my decisions around technology pretty easy. Like they have cars, they have guns, they don't have cell phones, they don't have internet, but they have like walkie talkies, right? So there's like a, a bunch of decisions that were sort of locked in for me because I had chosen a specific analogous time period. And now that I'm like working in the science fiction world, that's like, or future or like alternative future, you know, you're making, everything's out the window, right? Because like, you don't have something to ground you. You can't be like, oh, well, what, what, it was roughly, you know, the technology of this time period. Now you get to decide, well, how how futuristic do you want this world to feel versus how, like, because there's no, no one is going to be like, this seems like 2300, right? Like nobody knows what 2300 is going to be so that no one can kind of compare your world to that. Um, and that's raised a bunch of interesting things when it comes to world building. So, because this is a very, the project I'm working on has very cyberpunk vibes. There's like artificial bodies. So I have to make a decision about like, well, how, how advanced are these artificial bodies? Are they sort of early stage or kind of janky? Like they, they are they sort of falling apart and not great yet? Or are they like really advanced? And are they basically like Cylons or replicants where you can't tell them apart from humans at all? And I have to make the decision somewhere on that spectrum, but that is then going to give a message to the readers as as to like yeah, how yeah. far they're expecting this world to be. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that goes back to what we were talking about with clothing too. I think so much of that clothing aesthetic is from from Hollywood, right? So we really get that that Hollywood vibe of what clothes should look like in a fantasy, just like we get the vibe of what a Cylon or a replicant is supposed to be and that those are sort of 
little anchor points for readers to kind of go, okay, I can relax my brain and I know I'm comfortable. I'm in this place that's safe. This person is telling me a good story. Um, but it's, it's so funny because even though we try not to, we're always injecting parts of our, I think writers have gotten better and more conscious and certainly filmmakers have, but I always point to uh, the, the Camelot in the, in the 1960s with Richard Harris and everyone is wearing 1960s makeup, all the materials and the brocades look like they came off my grandmother's curtains, you know, or her couch. They, they, even the hair has like these bouffants. Um, it's really hard to, to notice the things that make your era iconic. And I think that that's one of the things that's hard for us, like cell phones, you know, my, my kids are like, well, you know, in the, in the ni- late 1900s, when you had a Motorola oh. razor, you know, like what was, what was a Nokia like, you know? And I'm just like, you didn't really, you really didn't have a cell phone in high school. You know, they're just like, their minds are blown. Cause to them, old technology is like the early yeah. iPhones. Right. I don't think they'd know what to do with a rotary phone, but we take that for granted. We wouldn't have to think of all those things if we were writing a, I mean, Saltburn is a period piece and it takes place in the early aughts, but that was 20 years ago. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. I just all appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) We felt so old. (laughs) (laughs) There's always some more wine if you need it. (laughs) On that note. It is, but it is something that like, I do think that our, general creative awareness of these things has changed and and the taste for it has changed too and i do think there are still areas where you can get away with just going completely gonzo bananas nothing matters if you're doing something absurdist or something very comedic it's fine um i always think about when it comes to like that is not the correct time period at all but i don't care xena warrior princess where they are (laughs) quite literally Mm -hmm. wearing renfair costumes half the time it's like oh yeah that's just straight up with Mm -hmm. someone but do i care not even slightly, because they're just having so much fun, and it doesn't matter in that context. It's right. just because the vibes are consistent. Yep. I feel right. like a lot of it yeah. is like, are, are your vibes consistent? Like, you know, are you the minute you act like consistency matters, then consistency has to matter. Yeah, <laughs> now right. it has to matter for every part of your book. But if you're like, ah, then 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 you're good. You're yeah. Helen of Troy and Julius Caesar happen at the same time. That's fine. No one cares. Like, if that's where you are. <laughs> Then and there's also still dragons around. Like, if that's right. where you are, then you can throw everything else out the window. Does that doesn't? That's not the important part. Yeah, I mean, one area that's super hard to make historically accurate or consistent, if you will, is language. Mm. Right? <laughs> like we're writing, you know, fantasy worlds, and you do you go down the rat hole of like, can you use the word like marathon because <laughs> you know there wasn't an ancient Greece in your world, or can you use the word like Manila envelope? You know, and if you go down that, I mean, you can either really go down a rat hole or you can be like you know what i'm going to i'm going to use the language i'm not going to like obsess about that and i'm going to use the language that feels right for like the vibes of the story that i'm telling and one place i think that like works like sort of shockingly well is um is the lock tomb series right which uses like a ton of modern slang and vernacular in this like wild crazy science fantasy world and it works because that, like, the language, um, just the authorial voice and the characters' voices just fit into the vibes of that story, even though, you know, you're, you're placing basically, like, 21st century slang into this gonzo. A thousand story. percent. I was just waxing romantic about those books a couple episodes ago and how <laughs> part of it is that it's, like, you feel so safe because it's not, even though there's this, like, common, like, 
like you said, slang, it's also so beautifully crafted and written, like on a sentence and on a structure level that it's just kind of mesmerizing. And and that's a sign to me of just like genius work, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah, so that, that language thing, I think that's such a good point. And it's such a, um, and it's such a piece of world building. I know that was one of the things that was uh, one of the biggest shifts for me with this new series is, uh, so for six bucks in the old world, I uh, only had, you know, I was using um, particularly in-world fantasy swears. And then with this new series, I was like, I'm going to use modern swears. It's going to be so good. And I had (laughs) six books worth of pent up fucks to give. (laughs) It was so much swears. Like, I don't even swear that much in real life. But, you know, there were so many, like, it had to get out. It had to get out. at the time Nivea was like Melissa as an avid swearer I never thought I would say this but there is too much swearing in this <laughs> gotta cut it down and I looked and I did the count and I had in a hundred I don't know it was like a, at that point like 110 word no 110 word 110,000 word draft I had 200 fucks <laughs> I love it I love that for you I say don't change a thing <laughs> There's too many. Melissa, this reminds me of when I moved from YA to adult, and I was like, the reins are all. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You're free. Free. Yeah. Fonda, when when I first read Jade City and got to the first sex scene, and I was like, oh, this is a different book. I was I not I was on the headspace for this yet. Okay. Now I know where now I know where we are. I, I think it's important to signal early on, whether it's with, you know, sex, violence, or profanity, exactly what the reader is signing up for. And that yeah. way, if they want to piece out by chapter two, they, you know, they can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Melissa, hopefully you have a few fucks on page one. They're, 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 they're you know, it sets the tone. Yeah. And I, I did cut it down. There's not 200 fucks in there anymore, but there's, there's a non-zero number. <laughs> with, with Velocity of Revolution... I actually did count it and it was like 46 because I got a review that was like, they used the F word so many times. I'm like, is it really so many? (laughs) And no, it's not that many. But because everything I had written before, I never had used it because I was doing like a more traditional fantasy. And then this, I'm like, brains are off. And so some of my longtime readers were like, hmm. Hmm. I'm sure I'll probably have some readers who like the lack of profanity in my in my current series. It will be a little put off, you know. Hopefully, they'll come with me on the ride anyway. I it's different. It's a different. Most will, most will, but there will be respect. There will be a couple who just like you know, and I totally respect that because everybody's got their stuff that they don't want to read, and like you know, if they don't want the profanity, then they can skip these books, and and I will I'll miss them, but that's okay. So, Melissa, I love that you sort of gave us that example of of a way of changing from your old world to your new, because one of the things we wanted to, to talk about is how do you get the old world out of your brain? What do you do to cleanse the palate, to move yourself on when you have been living in a world for, for so long and for so many words, for so, so, so many words, whether they are fuck words or not? Like, <laughs> Well, this is where... Your listeners won't be able to see Fonda cry on screen. Oh, <laughs> because it is really hard. It is, it, it's it's exceedingly hard 
um, to get the old world out of your head uh, when you tackle a new project. And part of it is because you know that world so well and you're so attached to it um, and you've spent so much time in it. Um, and, you know, another part is that the the old world is, um, it's, it's so well developed, it's so shiny and like filled in by the time you're done with it. And the new world is like, just this lump of like unformed, <laughs> like blob clayish nonsense, and, and and so there's always this feeling of like, um, what am I doing? I don't know how to write anymore. I don't know how to world build anymore. Like how what what am I what am I doing here? Um, and I think you know the only thing that has kind of I mean I I, I will say a few things I think that um, maybe haven't entirely helped, but were what things that I did. One was I did do kind of just a palette cleanse um, project. And, you know, that was, for me, that was Untethered Sky was the novella that I wrote. Um, that was just a standalone, you know, one-off short work. And I, I really enjoyed that, but it was a completely different world from Greenbone Saga. It's also a completely different world from the one I'm working on now. Um, but it was an older project. And I think that that helped me because it was something that I had started before. And so it didn't feel like I had, I was starting from zero going from the Greenbone Saga. I had something that was a project I had begun, had some bones, but I'd set it aside for a while and I could come back to it um, and work on that. And so that helped a lot. Um, and I think the other thing was just doing something very different. I think there is this, this tension that you have within yourself and probably just even maybe with your editor and your publisher of, Hey, I did this thing. And, you know, that turned out pretty, pretty well, but um, should I be doing something sort of similar so that like readers who liked the old thing will come along with me to the new thing? Or do I do something completely different to kind of flex and show that I have range, but also like clear my mind and make it easier to get into the new world? And that can be a challenge. And I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer. Authors do different things. But for me, it helps do something completely different. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the tension with the uh, uh, editor between, you know, uh, uh, where the best direction is for you to go. And, and uh, agents can obviously get involved too, just like trying to guide your career in a way so you're not tanking yourself um but uh i left entirely to my own devices my second series would not have been in the same world because for me then a new world is always shinier and i always for me world building is such a core part of story um like i mean you know marshall i know that you've told like a bajillion stories in the same world uh at this point or, or you know an ongoing series of linked stories in the same world and like i for me i i the story is such uh the world is such a part of the story that telling a second trilogy um, with new characters in the same world was, I, I kind of had to go world build a different part of it um, mm -hmm. in order to keep it fresh and, and in order to evolve a new story that was going to be linked to aspects of the world building that I hadn't delved into and developed in the first series. And the, so for me, it was um, almost more the reverse. It wasn't, it wasn't so much, how do I cleanse the old world from my palate? It was because I had the idea for the last hour between worlds while I was still very much working on Rooks and Ruin um it was so shiny and i kept not i kept having to tell my brain no you are still in this world you can't go off and play with the shiny toy you have to put that down and work on this thing that you are contracted to finish by a certain date 
not go play with your shiny new toy, even though it is all new and different. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, that, that was a little bit tricky, uh, for me. I, I think part of it is also like, I, I always tell myself, oh, well, this isn't, this isn't goodbye. I could totally come back to this world and these characters, they're still there. Um, you know, I could go and do at any time, should I feel like it, I can go back. And I think that's how I make it emotionally easy for myself is it's not, it's not like I moved to another country. I just walked into another room and that room is still there. And I can in theory walk back into it, even if again, well, I'm contracted to do other things for a while. So not in the immediate future, but you know, but it is there for me. And so I don't have to feel that separation from it. Yeah. I think that kind of philosophy for my kids going yeah, off. Yeah, and I think that, well, I think that emotional part is really important because I know I have finished series and it really feels like a grieving period. I mean, because because the, the books can help you through things and ha- and be this, you know, anchor in your own life that, that you know, no one sees. And, and I, I've talked about this before, but I do feel like you kind of have a relationship with those books. And, and it feels, sometimes it feels like you're like, I'm never going to write another book again. Like, how could I possibly get the get the contact high that I got from here ever, ever again. And it always does happen, but it feels impossible in that moment. And it feels so daunting. And even though it's shiny and I've done that too, and I have quite a few, you know, book worlds that I just started and stopped because I just needed to like, you know, spin in my seat for a little while, but, but it is profoundly emotional. And I think that part of being a professional writer though, is learning how to build that resilience to that because as precious as it is to you, you still got deadlines to meet and your editor really doesn't care that you're feeling sad because you had to move on (laughs) to another world. (laughs) They want to sell your book. Fonda, I'm curious, your, your add-ons to the world of the Greenbone saga with your, your prequels and the short stories and things, when did those happen? Like in your, your process of, of writing the whole, was it like during the trilogy, you started working on them or afterward? Where'd that come in? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is very apropos because those spinoff projects happened because I couldn't pull myself away from the world. I finished the trilogy and I was like, great, I'm done the trilogy. Thank goodness. I can move on to other projects. And instead of moving on to other projects, I basically started writing like fan fiction of my own world and characters. I love that so much. I didn't feel like <laughs> I was entirely done. I genuinely felt like I don't want to leave quite yet. I still have some stuff I want to write. Um, and so I wrote the, the the prequel novella. And then I started writing these short stories that I put out on Patreon, just because I was like, I'm writing them for fun. Maybe I should just monetize these and put them out on Patreon. So I did that. Um, and then Subterranean Press was like, so we heard you're putting these stories out. Do you want to collect them? And like, if you will, you write another one and then we can make a collection. And I was like, okay. So I ended up doing that. And then um, when the paperback of Jade Legacy came out, um, Orbit said, well, do you have any like bonus material or something that we could put at the end, you know, for the paperback release, put out some extras. And I was like, well, I can write like a travel guide to my world. <laughs> so I did that. And so like all these little add-on projects ended up being just more opportunities for me to stay with my world, with my characters. Um, and on one hand, they were kind of a procrastination tool. <laughs> so I maybe didn't get started on my next projects as, in as timely a fashion um, as I'd intended. <laughs> but they ended up being uh, they're joyous things. And yeah. they ended up being published and they're beautiful. Um, so I can't really, I don't, you know, I certainly don't regret doing them either. But I do think that the lesson learned from this was you, you do kind of need to give yourself some time to um to 
to kind of say goodbye to the world and the characters and move on to another project. Um, and sometimes those little things, those extras that you're doing, whether it's short stories or just like indulging yourself, playing with this world and writing extra bonus material, they can turn out to be publishable, monetizable material. So don't, <laughs> you know, don't uh, knock against them either because, um, you know, some of that, the, the short story collection and the novella ended up being like these beautiful limited edition books and uh, you know i'm very glad that i actually did take the time some people say kill your darlings i say put your darlings on patreon because <laughs> <laughs> there's always room for them there oh yeah yes killing darlings is overrated well that is all that's a whole other philosophy of things i agree but um <laughs> but yeah like I, I think there's also like you know there is a there's a comfort zone thing when you've been working in a world and you know it so well and leaving it can be scary and and sometimes it's nice to go back to it and to be familiar. Uh, listeners know that I I had something of a crisis of faith writing wise last year and spent several months convinced that I had completely forgotten how to do it at all. And what actually helped shake me out of it was going back to the world of Avon, was going back to my familiar world to like have that safety net to remind myself that I did in fact know how to put words together. I could in fact create sentences and then paragraphs and then pages. <laughs> But having that little that little cocoon, that little safety net for a little while, and it was I was very clear with myself, like you're gonna do this during NaNoWriMo. This will be fun for you, no pressure, and maybe you'll remember that you do in fact know how to write. And it worked. It like it helped. Like going back to my familiar world, it's not something that, yeah, you can't like I can't indulge in that constantly, because I have to have something new to give my agent to sell. <laughs> But details, it was a, details. <laughs> but it was a useful tool, right? When I was struggling, it was a useful tool, and now I am feeling much more confident again. I feel like you nice. have that whole safety to safety versus freedom nexus, you know, slider. Yeah. If the newer it is, the more freedom I have, but also the more work I have to do and the more risks I'm taking. Whereas if it's old and familiar, I have this really stable foundation, and I can just go straight to story if I'm using familiar characters, you know, or in a familiar world, I don't have to do the world building and I can just dive right in. And I have this strong foundation that's holding me up and I'm not like going out on the shaky limb, taking a risk, but I also don't have that freedom to be like, let me throw in this crazy new element, you know, that I just got inspired to do. I can't do that if it's my established world. So. I keep finding myself in this weird contradictory place where it's like, ooh, this is new and shiny and therefore fun. But at the same time, this is this unformed lump of clay and I don't know anything about it. And it's terrifying at the same time. And so then I just end up doing nothing for a while because I'm like, what can I do? But I want to do it. <laughs> I guess the question of being working in two different worlds at the same time, I'm not actively writing in two worlds when I'm editing and writing in different worlds. And I've had to do that a few times. And that can be very jarring, um, especially since I'm a really sloppy note taker, <laughs> i.e. don't take notes and try to keep it all in my head. Um, I don't think I've ever mixed them up, but I think I've definitely struggled to find my voice and kind of write as fast as I want to. Mm -hmm. It takes kind of longer to get settled back in it. Have you Have you had similar experiences or do you have any tips or tricks to do that? Yeah, I actually went through this in a big way this year because I'm writing this science fiction novel that I mentioned, but I'm also writing, I'm co-writing a fantasy, YA fantasy novel um, with Shannon Lee um, that's called Scroll of Heaven. It's like a 
uh, Bruce Lee inspired YA fantasy novel. And so it's very different. And so I've, I've been working on two projects at once um, and going back and forth between them, um, which is, by the way, a terrible idea. Don't ever agree to write two novels in one year <laughs> on, on a side note. But, um, you know, it's it, it's in in one way, it's great because when you get totally stuck on one project, you can be like, screw it. I'm like, piecing out of this. I'm going to the other project. I'm going to pay attention to this for a while. So um, there's that benefit. But uh, the challenge is that it takes time to get in and out of a world and an authorial voice. So when I'm making those switches, if I, let's say I finish one round of revision on one project and I, I recently did, I sent the, the um, a draft of uh, Scroll of Heaven out and it's you know gone off to the to production. Um, but uh, I then took, it took weeks to kind of figure out the voice for my other project again, even though... It wasn't that long ago that I left it, but I felt like I had to print the whole thing out, read the whole manuscript over again. And it took a while of like writing to even kind of get the voice back for that project. So there's definitely this inertia that happens when you're with a project where any time, any sort of stoppage will jeopardize your momentum. But on the other hand, it can be nice to have a couple different projects so that you're not just spinning your wheels on one of them. You can always, there's always something else to, to go to. Yeah. I, I have a few thoughts on that. I, to, I, I totally agree about the, the shift being really hard. Like I keep, you know, we were talking about Patreon. I keep thinking, Oh, I should put a Patreon story set in my old world up on Patreon, but I've been working in this new one. The voices, different characters are different. And I'm like, that shift would take time. I would probably have to go reread mm -hmm. some of the stuff from the previous series to be like, wait a minute, how do I, who are these characters again? And what is this voice? And make sure, because otherwise it's not going to feel authentic to me and it's not going to come across as authentic to the readers because my my brain is just in a different headspace. Um, and I don't have the time to make that shift with all my deadlines. So I've been like, well, okay, I guess, sorry, Patreon. I guess you're not getting any stories in that world until I get this new one out of my head and have a break where I can go back to it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, definitely the same thing when I turn in one draft and go try to edit, uh, the previous project, like, uh, this is why whenever I, uh, have finished one project and it's off getting edited and I know I should be working on the next project, but I usually actually don't. And I clean my house or something instead until my editor gets done. <laughs> Because I can't make that shift. It's too hard. Like, I just can't get my yeah. brain. Like, all right, well, you know what? I'm going to get ahead on all my house chores and because that's what I can yeah. do. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good time to organize the office. Know, <laughs> yes. Or, or you know that you only have like two weeks. Like you handed a draft and then it's going to be like Christmas in two weeks, which is what happened right. to me back in December. Oh. Or you had something that's like, oh, you know, you're going to get edits back in like whatever, three weeks. And so you're like, meh. It's like not quite enough time. It's like too much time. time to waste, but not enough time to actually devote yourself to something else. The, the other thing that I run into is actually um, I am a giant nerd. And one of the one of my hobbies is uh, LARPing and tabletop gaming. And um, I often find that I find myself exploring similar themes in the games I'm running to the books I'm writing, but in uh. a different way with a different world. Mm -hmm. And I have to be really careful that I'm usually 
exploring it in different ways in the world building is nuanced in different directions. And I, I usually am relatively good about keeping my book world consistent, but then I'll go to run the game and be like, wait, wait, no, this is the world building from the other book. The magic doesn't quite work that way. Like I'm running a game right now that I'm, that also involves time travel, but in a different way and kind of is a little time loopy, but in a different way. And I have to be like, wait, no, nope. Does not work like in my book where I've put in a lot more work, fleshing it out and keeping those nuances separate can be a little tricky. Do I find I can work on different things at the same time if I'm doing completely different kind of work on those things? Like I cannot draft two different things at the same time. Like, no, it's just not going to work. Neither can I. That's what I discovered. (laughs) 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 But I can like... That way way lies madness. Yeah. (laughs) Planning and outlining on one while drafting another. Or I can, you know, do, you know copy edits and and mm-hmm. proofs on one while drafting another but you know mm-hmm. drafting two at once no and and i've learned that and i won't make that mistake again <laughs> it's got to be a sufficiently different <laughs> mindset that it's like the difference between drawing and writing you know almost that yeah. level of difference mm-hmm. uh so that i'm not because otherwise it, there, you just get too much overlap yeah same reason that oh yeah or oh yeah play with maps and uh, while yeah. drafting you know. right yeah. <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about sir <laughs> <laughs> though that can be its own tra- like now i'm just using this to procrastinate now i have mm. a very thorough map because it's necessary i need that i need that and not because i was afraid to write so therefore i spent research research is always the Ooh, great catch-all yeah. of oh yeah i need to do research on this i legitimately had this this week one of i'm writing a regency fantasy and it's it, it is alternate history so i can fudge the details a little bit but still i knew one of my characters one of her established things but she really was into parliamentary law and then i was finally stuck with that scene where i had to give myself a brief on early 19th century parliamentary law in england <laughs> wow you did do that to you yourself. had to oh i you had, had to, to. I, I established in the first book and i was like shit did this to myself Learn lots of things. Great names. Great names. We can have our emotional support maps. We can have our emotional support research. It's just part of the process. It's all fine. Yeah. I think the only thing that has somewhat saved me with um, my my day job, I am fortunate enough that it involves a different kind of creative writing. And I think the only thing that saves me from being able to, like, from getting stuck in gears is that it's different media. Mm -hmm. Like, it's essentially sort of like outline it's well it's outlines for immersive theater experiences so it's not even a script it's it's a very different thing or it's scripted podcasts that i do for them versus like the narrative writing and i think if they were closer beasts i would be in a lot more trouble of the tonal shifts not being distinct or just not being able to switch my brain to the right gear but i think a lot of years of experience doing that with between academic writing and creative writing too has like it's enough different, it's enough of a different kind of writing, it's using slightly different writing muscles that I can throw that switch. Some days it's a harder push than others. Right. <laughs> Some days you gotta to get them moving, but it still does, I think, I hope, keep me from <laughs> from too much of one drifting into the other. Yeah. Does anyone ever find, does does consuming other media either help you to reset your brain or make it harder to reset your brain? when switching between projects like other books you're reading or TV shows you're watching. Does it help hurt both at different times? Mm -hmm. I definitely find that they help to make the transition. Um, And mostly because 
I find that um, I can get into my world better the more I consume media that is inspirational to that world. So if I'm, you know, the fact that I'm writing something that has this, that I've described as samurai space opera, I'm reading off, absorbing a lot of science fiction and a lot of, um, I, I think I watched everything in like Kurosawa's filmography and you know, things like that. So th they actually help. What doesn't help for me is, um, is when I'm drafting, I find it very hard to read other fiction. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that that uh, can be circumvented for me is audiobooks. Um, and I, I think just the change in the, the delivery of the story, whether it's like on screen or it's audio, makes it so that it doesn't interfere with me trying to find the voice of this new project. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, for me, the, the thing is- no, I'm 100% the same. <laughs> same, yep. I can't get too many <laughs> similar. Like I, I, when I was working on, you know, it's, uh, uh, when I was working on Last Hour Between Worlds, it's a time loop story. And it was like, oh, I can't touch any other time loop stories mm -hmm. while I'm working on this because I don't want to be too influenced by them. Um, but I could, I could consume things that are sufficiently different, um, that I'm not right. worried about accidentally absorbing too much or about my own, or, or not even, not even that I'm going to copy it, but that my own thinking in the way that those little tender draft, first draft shoots would unfold, you know, might be, might be stifled by this other fully realized vision, um, that is, that is a little different, um, but, but having new input always, always, always helps me when I need to come up with, you know, creative new stuff, uh, travel. Like I realize that that's not accessible all the time for everybody, but like I find travel to be hugely beneficial. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be traveling to a place that's going to directly inspire my world building. Although obviously that can be incredibly helpful. Like, you know, uh, I had my Venice themed book that was definitely inspired by having been to actual Venice and then made a huge difference in terms of just absorbing those vibes. But I mean, things happen like anytime I go to somewhere that's just a different environment than what I'm in, it's all that new input is going to get processed in some deep level. And, you know, I might go to the Southwest and then suddenly write something set in a forest that is nothing like the Southwest, but it was just different enough than what I'm used to seeing around myself that it gets the neurons firing and gets creative connections being made that wouldn't otherwise be there. And media can fill that as well, um, potentially, especially if it's something new and fresh. Like, you know, I defy anybody to go and watch The Boy and the Heron or, uh, you know, Spider-Verse or something like that, or or the everything everywhere all at once that's just very fresh and new and different and not come away wanting to make something, you know? <laughs> Maybe not something like that because I'm not gonna try and copy any of that. It's way too good. Uh, I, I will say warning though, I watched the boy and the heron in the theater with my daughter and my, and my husband, and I am not a crier much. I know I said that a lot, but I was a mess. I was like, <laughs> am I going to have to like leave? Am I like, you know, I hit that point where I was just <laughs> so emotionally ruined that I was like, I don't know that I should be in public right now. Cause it's... I haven't seen it yet. I was planning to go next week. Oh, I am, I am duly warned. Yeah. It's about trauma, not to ruin every, anything, but it really is about trauma. So just be prepared for that level of like, whew, yeah, and beautiful and weird and everything that we love Miyazaki for. So yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm glad I did not take my children of like five years ago to that movie without knowing exactly how about trauma it was going to be because, you know, some of them would not have been ready <laughs> emotionally. But they are now, so they you really enjoyed it. It was good. <laughs> yeah. It's a good warning because I am a crier. I cry at everything. 
So it's good to know that maybe I this, maybe this is one to watch at home. Maybe this is one not to watch in public. I think tissues. <laughs> Unless you want to share the catharsis with everyone else in the theater. But, yeah. Man, I am such an ugly crier that <laughs> ain't it's nobody dark. wants a no part one, of that. No one can see. <laughs> They'll be crying out there themselves. So. <laughs> well, yeah, we are about at our hour. Uh, is Are there any other final thoughts y'all wanted to to touch on? Or do we move to our beloved final segment? Pretty good to move on to the final segment, I think. Unless there's, Vada, was there anything you wanted? No, I'm good. Good. Awesome. Well, as our listeners and both of you know, we like to end our guest episodes by asking our guests to give us a bit of trivia for this world that we have been co-building live on the podcast for years now. There are so many bits of trivia, many of which are going to be making appearances in the upcoming anthology, which is very exciting. We've been able to weave some of those in. But uh, give us some more. Give us some more things we need to weave into this wonderful, wild, weird world that we have that's sometimes more coherent than not. And that's fine (laughs) because it is a living, breathing thing that gets to keep changing. We can retcon it whenever we want to. Well, all right. I know. Um, so one thing that many fantasy readers, writers, and, you know, uh, universe inhabitants run into a lot is the difficulty that in telling the difference between a raven and a crow. It, it, you know, it, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a problem. It comes up all the time. So luckily I am here to offer you the universal Corbett. It is a magical <laughs> bird that can be anywhere in size from a mag from from the smallest magpie all the way up to the largest raven uh it fits every single trope it's very smart and mischievous excellent familiar for wizards everywhere it can utter dark prophecies it can still good good it is prepared for any corvid related needs Fantastic. That is amazing. I am delighted with our universal Corvid. I want a flock of them. What's the amazing. name of the universal Corvid? Yeah. I mean, you know. What's uh, the collective noun of the universal Corvid? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, if you stick crow and raven together, you get craven, which already means something mm. else. So, yeah. So much. Mm. <laughs> a raval. Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't work the other way. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't need a name. Maybe it's just the Universal Corvid. The Universal Corvid. <laughs> it's named. The UC. Yeah. Universal yeah. UC. You could call it UC. Like UC. E-U-C-E-E. Yeah. You yeah. could call it UC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The UC. UC. Yeah. Bam. There it is. Nailed it. Love it. <laughs> nice. Love it. All right. So one thing that features quite prominently in my series is body modification. Um, and I think that this world needs to have tattoos of some particular interesting and significant meaning. Um, so um, I don't know where it fits yet. Maybe that'll be for someone else to figure out. But um, I think that uh, some some particular important milestone in people's lives, they maybe an accomplishment. Maybe it's some particular quest or some task that they have to complete um, at the end of this they have to get a particular tattoo um, and they have to have it tattooed um, on right on the middle of their forehead and this makes them especially uh, renowned or it makes it's a mark of particular accomplishment that they carry with them for the rest of their lives um, but there has to be something about this tattoo 
um, that can't be just like replicated. It can't be falsified. Mm. So maybe it's like magic ink or maybe it's. We've got magic pigments. Yeah. Oh, you have magic pigments. We do have magic pigments. Okay. Well, there you go. Perfect. Perfect. Magic pigmented (laughs) tattoo in the middle of your forehead. Delightful. I am sure we have some societies that can that can make use of that. Someone could get a UC tattooed on their forehead yeah. with magic when you pigments. Have, when you have become Universal Corvid Friend, you get to have Universal <laughs> Corvid Friend tattoo. There you go. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for joining us again. It is absolutely always a delight to talk to you, both of you, on the podcast, off the podcast, anywhere at all. Thank you. You are wonderful. Me. It's it's great to be here and great to be here with you, Fonda. It's great to see all of you again. Yeah. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, including the new editions of all my Meridane novels, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochist.podbeam.com. We also have an archive of all our episodes and links to more information about the guests of this and every episode. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Blue Sky as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.